boxes to make sure you do. We had uh, some ladies in our church, we purchased 400 boxes and they literally had to fold them into boxes. And so uh, they, along with myself, along with many children, would love for you to pick these things up. Uh, fill them up and bring them back. There are instructions. Some of you may say, well, I don't even know how to begin to do that. There's a card on the inside of the box uh, that gives you instructions on exactly what you need to do, what they prefer you put in the box. Uh, and so the boxes are at exits here. You'll see them back over here in this corner and also back there in front of the historical area there. So please pick up a box and bring it back. And we need those back by November 15th. Now, let me just say this. Uh, some of the stories of those who, have, who are on the mission field even now, uh, how many of you know the carpenters who were there in Africa? Uh, what's interesting about them is what put them into that area was through the shoebox. That's the door that God used to put them in that area. Now, it doesn't mean that if you fill one up and it's sent out and all of a sudden you're going to be called to be a missionary in that part of the world. Well, it could, I guess. It did for the carpenters. But it's very important that uh, we get these done and send them out and uh, just touch children with the love of God. And so I hope you'll make a point to pick one up, fill it up, and bring it back by November 15th. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look into this ancient world, uh, word this morning. And uh, boy, I tell you, the praise team did a phenomenal job with that song, and uh, we appreciate them. I haven't heard that song in a long time, and what a joy it is to hear it and just to be a reminder of what God's word is in our lives. We're continuing the series, In Him, For Him. And today, specifically, we're looking at unity in Him, For Him. But before we look into the sermon, I want to give you a little, uh, as a teacher, I want to show you something here in the text or in, in the book of Ephesians that maybe some of you have known. Uh, of course, if you've been here over the last several weeks, you would have already known this. But the book of Ephesians is divided, rightly so, into two areas. And look on your outline, the layout of Ephesians. First, in chapters 1 through 3, we see who we are in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6, we see what is for Christ. And so we see that. There's, there's a difference in the two and how Paul sets up this letter. Uh, in chapters 1 through 3, we had spiritual wealth. That's what we've been talking about. Now we're transitioning into our spiritual walk. How does it play out? In chapters 1 through 3, we saw our position, who we are in Christ, who's and what we are. And, and now we're turning and transitioning to our practice. How do we act based on that information? Uh, chapters 1 through 3 is doctrinal, while chapters 4 through 6 are practical. Chapters 1 through 3 are, uh, is all about revelation, what has been revealed to us. Of course, chapters 4 through 6 is responsibility. What are we to do with what's been revealed to us? And then, of course, chapters 1 through 3 is belief, while chapters 4 through 6 are behavior. Chapters 1 through 3 is our heavenly standing, where we stand as, as it relates to Christ. And chapters 4 through 6 is uh, the earthly walk. Chapters 1 through 3, how God sees us in Christ, how God sees us. And chapters 4 through 6, how the world should see us for Christ. You see, here's what's interesting. Many of you have heard this before. There's many people who will never pick up God's word and read it for themselves. But guess what? They can read God's word as it is displayed through your life. That, that can happen. And I think that's what we've been called to do. To not only understand who we are positionally in Christ and all the things that come our way by being in that, by coming to him, but also that our lives reflect that that's a reality in our life. So look at the introduction. The calling that we're going to look at this morning, the calling represents the time in which we trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord. 
We receive by faith through repentance what Jesus provided through the cross. It is at that time that we are placed in Christ. We looked at that over the last several weeks with others who have done the same. From this point, we then begin to live together. How do we live? In unity, the life he intends for us to live. Not only in him, but also for him. And so that's what we've been called to do. So the first thing I want you to see this morning as we make our progression through these thoughts is uh, the first of all, the excellence of the call. What is this call? What's been placed upon us? And the first thing that we see there is the challenger. The challenger is, uh, look at verse one. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. I therefore, he's saying based on everything I've shared with you before, this is the third time he's told us he's a prisoner of the Lord. He's indicating to us that he's sold out to God, that he's there, that he's doing all that he's asking us to do. And so he's saying, I've given up myself. Now, many of you will notice as you look into the skies that this is the time of year that geese fly south for the winter. For several weeks, they fly in long V-shaped formations. How many of you have already started seeing this take place? Yeah, you're seeing this. These geese, they say, can fly. Now, this is amazing to me. At speeds as fast as 40 to 50 miles per hour. The geese. Can you imagine that? Uh, They travel in formation because as each bird flaps its wings, it creates an updraft for the bird behind them. They can go, listen to this, 70% further in a group than they could if they flew alone. 70% further. Christians are that in the same way. We have a common purpose. We are propelled by the passion of others who share the same goals. We can get a lot further together than we can alone. Now, how many of you have noticed that geese honk at each other? You ever heard that? That's a disgusting, I hate that sound. But, but they do. Now, they're not, they're not being critical of the other geese around them. They're encouraging the geese around them. So, so it's not a matter of being critical. Speed up, dude. It, it's not that. It's, it's basically, these in the rear are there to exhort those up front to stay on course and maintain their speed. We, too, move ahead much more easily if there is someone behind us encouraging us to stay on track and to keep going. Y'all, that's what Paul is doing here in chapter 4, verse 1. He's basically telling us to to stay on the course. This is what you are in Christ, chapters 1 through 3. This is positionally where you are. These are the spiritual blessings that come with that position of who you are in Christ. But now, let me encourage you. Let me challenge you to walk the walk that matches what has been done and who you are in Christ. So we we move from the challenger to the challenge, the challenge. Look at verse one again. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, when he says beseech you, here's what he could be saying. I beg you, I exhort you, but most of all, I challenge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So there's this calling. What is that calling? It's what we said in the introduction. It's the calling in which you come to Christ. It's where he calls you into his kingdom. We become one in him. Uh, we are in Christ. That is the calling. It's the call of salvation. But it goes further than that. He says, based on that, walk worthy. Paul is saying, this is what, here's what he's doing. He's saying that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, 
We were once spiritually dead in our sins, but now are alive in Christ. We were once far off from Christ and all that he offers, but now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ, who is our peace and who has broken down the walls between the Gentiles and the Jews. That's really more than Gentiles. It's all people. He's broken down all walls. He's bringing us together, making us both into one body or one new man, both now being reconciled to God. Furthermore, we are no longer strangers, but we're in the family of God and also fellow heirs. And besides all these spiritual blessings, Paul continues to say, I, pr- I have prayed for you to, to be enlightened to these truths and to be empowered by the Spirit. Now, having all these things, here's what he's saying. Now that you got all these things, that's what therefore means. He's referring back. I beg you to do it. Now, uh, under saying all these things, walk worthy of this calling that you are in Christ. So walk worthy based on everything that's back there. Now, look back at verse one. Walk refers to daily living or lifestyle. It's how you conduct yourself on a daily basis. It's really what people observe in your life. What does your lifestyle represent? Y'all, that that, that tells a lot about your actions, your reactions to things, how you conduct yourselves, how you minister to people. All those things are those things in which we would say is in our daily walk. But let me say this about our walk. Right beliefs breed right behavior. You got to have a belief system that is right before you can have a walk that is right. You've got to understand what's expected. You've got to understand what God is calling us to. And, and the only way to know that is through his word. That's the reason this is a precious book to us. It's all in his word. It's there. But there's a second word in verse 1. It's basically the idea of worthy. It means commendable excellence. That's literally what it means. Now, in the Greek language, worthy, this is interesting, has a root meaning of balancing the scales. That's worthy. And here's what it means. It means that what's on one side should be equal to what's on the other side. In this context, it means that our practical life, how we conduct ourselves, should match our spiritual position. It's basically that whole idea of us realizing who we are in Christ, realizing what he did, what he provided for us in this new life, and us living over here something that matches who we are in him. That's what it says when he says, walk worthy. So here's some questions. Does your life reflect the provision God has made through Jesus Christ on your behalf? Does your daily life exemplify the commendable excellence of God? Does your life point people to Jesus? Here's the footnote. The real challenge in life is living up to the position or calling of being a child of God and a fellow heir of Christ. Y'all, really, that is the challenge of the life that we're called to live. So over here, we understand who we are in him. We understand all the benefits that come with it. And then over here, we begin to live the life that reflects all those things over there. So, So really, the question is this. Are you living a life that reflects, if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that reflects the things that are over here, the things that we've been talking about over the last several weeks. The first thing, the next thing I want you to see is the etiquette of the call. The etiquette of the call. Now, how many of you realize that every country and organization has standard codes of expected conduct and goals to achieve? Paul is saying that the church... The people who make up the body of Christ is no different. 
We need to develop character traits and attitudes that fosters a spirit of unity. Now think about that. What does that look like? Well, he's getting ready to tell us. The attitudes that should be reflected in the church, listen, are not necessarily celebrated in our culture. The Greeks and the Romans, this is amazing, the Greeks and the Romans did not even have a word for the first attitude we're going to look at, and that's humility. Now imagine having a whole, a whole language, and there's not a word that re- represents what humility is. You couldn't even find it in the Greek language, in the, in, in, uh, the Roman language. It, it wasn't there. Uh, they associated humility, their word for it, would have been cowardly. That's how they looked at it. You see, pride was, and how many of you have noticed, is celebrated. It's celebrated in our culture. It really always has been. Pride is at the core, however, of all sin. It was and is a supreme temptation of the enemy because pride is at the heart of the enemy's own nature. How many of you realize the enemy, Satan himself, what's at the core of his own nature is pride. That's how the Bible describes the core of his nature. So naturally, what does he want to do with us? He wants to insert his his nature into us. Guess what God desires to do in our lives? He desires to, to, to bring his nature into us. And so there's competing worldviews. There's competing ideas. And and so you have that. It's at play. Now think of this, y'all. Just as every sin has its roots in pride, every godly virtue has its root in, in humility. Isn't that interesting? Now, the first etiquette of the call or a first attitude necessary for unity is, number one, humility. It is humility. Humility literally represents courteously respectful, not arrogant. It's a whole idea to lower oneself in, stat- in status. So, so look at verse 2. He says, I, I beseech you basically to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness. That, that is a beautiful picture of what humility is, lowliness. Now, let me help you see something. Speaking of Jesus, here's what John the Baptist said. He, how many of you remember this? He, meaning Jesus, must, when he says must, it means not an option any other way. He must increase, the word increase in that verse, we find this in John 3.30. John the Baptist talking about, he must increase, it's written in the present tense, it means he must continually, he must increase continually, but then John says about himself, but I must decrease. That's also in the present tense, and it means continually. So here's, here's the picture of what he's saying. John the Baptist says, as it relates to my life, I am continually decreasing while Christ is increasing in my life. Now let me ask you a question. Is that same thing going on in your own life? It's amazing how sometimes we, we go along in our Christian walk and we feel like we've surrendered certain areas of our life and we feel like we're walking in humility and we really are trying to get there. And, we're, and then all of a sudden, isn't it amazing how quick we can take ownership of our life? <laughs> and all of a sudden we're saying, no, no, no. And it's interesting that really what John the Baptist said, he summed up really what life has got to really be about. He must increase in my life and I've got to get out of the way. I've got to decrease. And y'all, that is the picture of humility. Someone has said this. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It is really not thinking of ourselves at all. It's a good quote, isn't it? John MacArthur writes, humility is a virtue to be highly sought, 
but never claimed. Because once claimed, it is then forfeited. Think about that. How many of you have heard someone say something along, oh, I'm the most humble person I know. <laughs> I mean, you've just thrown it out. You forfeited the claim. The great theologian Brian Glisson once said, humility... I'm playing, this, this, uh, I'm playing this on you. You understand, right? Anyway, humility is the path to submission to God and you, 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 <laughs> unity with others. Can't even say my own quote. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, but it is. It, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him increasing and myself and yourself decreasing. A second, necessary, a second attitude necessary for unity is meekness. Meekness, and we discussed this back in the summer. It literally means gentle, submissive, tame, not harsh, power under control. As I was looking through my notes last night, I want to add another one. It could also mean emotions under control. Emotions under control. Look at verse 2 again. Okay, walk worthy of the calling which is in which you were called with all lowliness, and in my translation it says, and gentleness. If you have the King James Version, not the New King James, it, it literally says meekness. Okay? And, and so it's that whole idea. Meekness is a willingness to waive one's rights for a good cause. Okay? Do, it means this. Do not demand that you be satisfied or be heard, but be willing to suffer loss, inconvenience, even loss of comforts, and even possible hurt for the sake of the gospel. This is the attitude of the meek. That's what it looks like when it's displayed. Here's a third attitude necessary for unity. Patience. Patience. It literally means enduring and understanding while under trying circumstances. It carries the idea of not being easily offended. Let me ask you a question. Anybody in here easily offended? Some of you probably, probably would say, well, it depends on what day it is. Some days I just wake up and I don't have any patience for anything. You know, I don't have patience until I drink my first cup of coffee. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I normally have patience everywhere but, but in the house with my family. I mean, it seems like I just can't get it together. I mean, we got all these ideas about where it should be and where it shouldn't be. But you know something? As it relates to the call that we've been called, it should define, patience should define who we are. Let me ask you a question. Does it define who you are? I'm just going to tell you at times it doesn't me. I mean, I mean let's face it. When do, when do you, when's your patience tried the most? For me, it's in traffic. I mean, I bring it up all the time, but I mean, sometimes some of you are looking at each other like, yeah, yeah. My wife says she doesn't even recognize the person I become when I get in traffic. You know, it's just like, anyway, but, but it's a whole idea that it should, it should carry out on all areas. It's an attitude that's necessary for unity. Aristotle said this, the greatest Greek virtue, listen to this, was refusal to tolerate any insult and readiness to strike back. That was one of the highest Greek virtues. Look at, listen to it again. Was refusal to tolerate any insult and readiness to strike back. That's what was promoted in that culture. Y'all, that, that, that can't be promoted in the church. And it shouldn't be promoted in the church. It's got to move beyond that. So look at verse 2 again. How do we walk worthy of this calling? With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering. Patience is needed. How many of you agree with this? 
Patience is needed when faced with unmet expectations, imperfection, unfair judgments. All of these are alive and well in the church and even in our homes. But we must stay the course of being patient with one another. That's something that should define us as our patience. Here's a fourth one. A fourth attitude necessary for unity is forbearance. Forbearance. It literally means self-control when annoyed. And you could put this, or even provoked. (laughs) Self-controlled when annoyed or provoked. Look at verse 2 again. How do you walk worthy? With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another. How many of you have already had to bear with someone this morning? Yeah, we, we do all the time, don't we? I mean, it's a matter of life. The ability to bear with others, even, here's what it means. Forbearance is the ability to bear with others even when they are wrong. That's tough, isn't it? How many of you sometimes just feel like your spiritual gift is to correct the wrong in the world? So, so, so forbearance is to bear with other people even when they're wrong and even when they are cruel and insulting. That's tough, isn't it? Forbearance is not a question of maintaining a facade of courtesy while inwardly seething with resentment, but it is a spirit and Powered love to those who irritate, disturb, or even embarrass us. That's what it looks like. Here's where most of us are. <laughs> I've been there. I'm, I'm laughing because I've been there. Someone insults us or someone says something, you know, and, and you sit there and you're, you, you smile. While on the inside, you just want to rip them apart. I mean, you just, I mean, you do. I mean, that's just there and it's like, but you sit there and smile. And then many of us will walk away and we think, man, did pretty good, God, didn't I? Did pretty good, didn't I? That's not the same thing. A lot of us feel like if we can just endure it and get through it and put a smile on our face and walk away. No. You know why? Because think about what Jesus was doing. When he talked to the Pharisees, he, he talked to them pretty strongly. I mean, he went after them at times. And that's what he accused them of. They were out there pretending and putting on facades about who they were. When on the inside, that's not who they were. And so the inside, what he's saying is what's happening on the inside, the inward working of the Spirit of God in your life must match what's over here and what's been provided for you. So it's something else. So so again, look at verse 2. He says, how do you walk worthy? With all lowliness and gentleness and with, self, with long-suffering, bearing one another. And then what he says is, here it is. How do you do it? In love. Notice that all of these attitudes require dying to self. Humility requires dying to self. You do know that, right? Patience, meekness, both of those dying to self. Okay? Forbearance, dying to self. How do you do it? You, you, you not only die to self, here's the tough part. Then you got to love them. You got to die to yourself, and then you got to reach beyond all the mess to love them. That's how you foster unity. You, you, you got to reach beyond it. The word love here is agape love. You know what agape love is, don't you? It's unconditional. It's a love that's put out there with no conditions. It, it, it doesn't mean where the person... Is unconditional. And that's what we're seeing here. We are to love others in the way God loves us. 
So, so here's a question. How are you dealing with the idiosyncrasies of those you attend church with, you live with, you work with, you go to school with? You can't, but God can and he lives in you to transform. Listen, here's part of it. He wants to transform your temperament and your attitude as you deal with those who irritate you. So let me ask you a question. Did anybody irritate you last week? Anybody? You know what irritation is, don't you? It's that thing that is set before you to see how you're going to respond. A lot of people, a lot of you think, no, it's the person trying to get on my nerves. It's a person trying to harm me. It's a person. No, really, irritation, let's just call it what it is. It's just, it's just one of those things that's placed in your life just to see how you're going to respond. And when you look at it that way, it has a whole different meaning. And we need to understand it is God's desire to transform us, to transform our temperament and our attitude. And here's what you can't say in the midst of that. I just want you to know that the only way I'm able to love you right now is God loving you through me. Now, for some of us, that's a good place to start. But that doesn't need to be the the part that doesn't need to be the end game. The end game is you truly love a person who does offend you, who does hurt at times. You reach beyond all that. Here's a footnote. William Barclay says this. Christians are people who are drawn together because they owe a common debt to the goodness and grace of God. You know what that means? We're all going to let each other down. We're all going to hurt one another. But the one thing we got to keep in mind, there's a common goal and there's a common debt that we're both seeking to move towards. And, and that's, that's, that's what it's really all about. Next, the expectation of the call. Now, what is the expectation? What, what, what is the general expectation? He says, walk worthy with all lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. So what is the expectation of all that? It's unity. He's looking for unity. Now, let me give you a picture of disunity. I've listed several words there. Discord, dissension, disharmony, disconnection, competition, conflict, tension, hostility. All of these are pictures of disunity. But the call that's been placed on our lives is a picture of unity. A picture of unity. So look at verse 3. He says, all right, we're going, we're going to put all this in the context of verse 2 with all lowliness. We're going to walk worthy with all lowliness, gentleness, with self-control, bearing with one another in love. And then here's how we're going to keep maintain that. Now, here's the expectation. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, how many of you remember Tonto and the Lone Ranger? How many of you remember that? Even I remember that. Tonto and the Lone Ranger were riding through a canyon together when all of a sudden both sides were filled with Native American warriors on horses dressed for battle. The Lone Ranger turned to Tonto and asked, what are we going to do? Tonto replied, what you mean we, white man? <laughs> the church is to remain unified even when there are internal and external threats to it. I mean, let me just tell you one thing. How many of you know that studying through his, studying history, that persecution was always seen, seen to be good for the church? How many of you ever did a, a study of church history? Do you know persecution was good for the church? Number one, it, it brought the right people together. 
Not the people who put on a mask. Not people who aren't real. Persecution has a way of doing that, doesn't it? You're not going to sign up for something if you're not all in it, especially when persecution comes. But, but here's the thing you've got to realize. What, what happens is we need to realize that persecution not only brings us together. For the, for the early church, it, it, it was a unifying process. All of a sudden, when the persecution was turned up, do you know what? A lot of the letters that Paul wrote to all these people encouraging them to be unified and him talking about all their differences, all of a sudden there was unity <laughs> because the persecution was turned up. And you see that. But how do we do this? How, how do we go beyond that? How do we, number one, endeavoring to keep. Endeavoring to keep. It means working to do one's best, to be diligent and intentional. Listen, if we want unity in the church, unity in our families, unity in our communities, unity among nations, listen, you've got to do it with diligence and also be intentional. It just doesn't just happen. It's something you work towards. It also means not putting off. Endeavoring is, listen, here in this context is in the present tense, which means to do so continually. It means to never let your guard down to something that may come against the unity. That means you're constantly on guard to guard against disunity. So here's another picture of unity. He says, look on your outline, of the Spirit. Of the Spirit. It's speaking of the Holy Spirit. Working toward His plans, His goals. Now think of this, y'all. The idea is that the Holy Spirit is directing the work of the church. How many of you believe that with all your heart? It is the Holy Spirit directing the work of the church. That is the intention. That's what's supposed to happen, okay? That's what needs to be there. It's not, the idea is the Holy Spirit directing the work of the church and not our personal agendas and preferences. It's what the Holy Spirit is seeking to do with the church as, as a whole or as a local body. What is he seeking to do when it comes to this? Here, here's another third picture, a bond of peace. It literally means joined together. It speaks of oneness by peace in spite of our differences. How many of you would agree that, 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 that the closer you get in a relationship with someone, the more the differences seem to rise up? You start seeing that there are differences. Have you ever noticed that? It happens with us in the church. It happens with you when you get in a small group. <clears throat> you start noticing there's some differences. Uh, when you, in your family, you start noticing these things. But it's the idea of being weaved together in spite of our differences. Did you know that's possible? That, that we don't have to let race separate us. We don't have to let our politics separate us. We don't have to let whether we pull for the Panthers separate us or the sorry Cowboys or whatever. Uh, I mean, we, we don't have to let those things separate us. But here's the footnote. Unity is not something we create. It is something we preserve. Did you know that the Spirit of God brings the unity? Here, here's, what that, here's a picture of what that means. When the Spirit of God shows up, unity is there. When, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. When, it, when he shows up, when he's doing a move, when a move of God is happening and the Spirit is bringing things together, there's a spirit, spirit of unity that is there. You look at that in the first century. You see it there in the church. It says they had all things in one accord. They came together. Guess who was directing all that? The Bible says the Spirit of God was directing all that. So, so their, the, the purpose for what they were doing was not to create the peace. The peace was already there. But to keep the peace, that's a whole different thing. 
when the Spirit of God is there, there will always be peace. So our role in it is to keep the peace. That applies to the church. It applies to your family. It applies anywhere you want it to apply when you're talking about believers. So without unity, the focus to reach those in need of salvation is lost. So, so if we're over here and we're not keeping the peace, first of all, we don't create it. But if we're not intentionally and diligently keeping the peace, then we'll lose focus of what we've been truly called to do. And y'all, that's so true. How many of you know, have ever seen or heard of or been a part of churches that there was always disunity? Those are churches who have lost the focus to do what they've been called to do. I thank God that I pastor a church that is unified. Yeah, I mean, it is a blessing. I've been, I was around pastors this past week at a conference, and there was two churches that were represented that conference, and, and large churches, much bigger than ours, and they were talking about the disunity that just seemed to come out of nowhere in their church, starting to split things apart. That's what the enemy seeks to do. And guess what? It can happen to us just overnight. You know that, right? we got to diligently work to keep the peace about what God is doing so we don't lose focus. Next, the expression of the call. What does it look like? When it's all said and done, when you have all these things working, what does it look like? Look at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And so you've got this picture. This is how it plays out. Now, the repetition in these verses highlights the importance of unity in the church. One describes that which is united as one in contrast to that which is divided or consisting of separate parts. The word one, now here's what's interesting here in this verse. If you look at this, these verses, the word one is not an exhortation. It is a declaration. It's not one to say, okay, guys, we need to come together to become one body. We need to come together to make sure we're acknowledging there's one Lord. We need to come together to make sure. Uh, it's not the exhortation to do that. It's already there. <laughs> it's a declaration. That's what's being said. With the declaration does come the intended, the intendance and also the expectation to a reality in the church. So he's basically saying, you don't create all these things. These things are one. This, this is a declaration. It's not an exhortation. But you are to keep focused on this. There is an expectation that you operate under this declaration. You're not working to, to bring it about. It's already there. That's the intent. It's already supposed to be there. Now, so when he says this, look on your outline. I'll go quickly. One body means we are a family unified for one purpose. One body unified for one purpose. Not to sit around and discuss all the differences and what divides us, but what we can agree to what we've been called to do. Number, number two, one spirit. We are all indwelt by the same spirit. Isn't that amazing? How, how we, can, we can focus so much on our differences. I'm talking about within the church. I'm talking about Bible-believing people. Uh, people who've trusted the Lord as our Savior. Isn't it amazing how we can, we can have all the proper context but lose total perspective? <laughs> When he, I mean, think about this. There's only one spirit. Listen, I'm, I'm going to get real, I'm coming after you with this one. Listen, it's not one spirit for this race and one spirit for this race and one spirit for that race. Same spirit. It's not one spirit for America, one spirit for Canada, one spirit for Mexico, one spirit for Nepal. It's one spirit. 
It's amazing how we, we think there are all these differences. They're not. It's not. There's one hope. We all look forward to the same future. All of us. <laughs> We're in this together. One Lord, we all submit to the same person. One faith, we all trust Jesus for salvation. One baptism, we all have a single identity. Isn't it amazing how we think everybody's different and they're doing this over here and they're doing that over here. And, and also there's one God and Father. We all share the same Father. So when you look at people of another race, they know Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. You know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Guess what? You got the same daddy. That's hard to deal with for some people. You know that, right? But it's true. It's all there. We all share the same father. So look at verse 6. Of all speaks of those who make up the church. Above or over all is, his, is God's sovereignty. Through all is his omnipotence. In you all is his indwelling presence and his omnipresence. That means he's everywhere. He's indwelling you. So here's the footnote. On the way to the cross, Jesus prayed for the oneness of all those who profess to believe in him. Here, here's what Jesus prayed. Look here on the screen. See, see if, we, if we've done a good job with it. I do not pray for these alone. He's talking about these that were gathered, his disciples that were right there with him. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me. Now, who does that include? That's us. 2,000 years later, it comes to us. That they will, may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. <laughs> okay? That the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I've given them that they may be one just as we are one. One as we are one. Think about that. Jesus, we're getting just before his death. I mean, he's on his way to the cross. We're counting down the days. We're counting down the moments. And all of a sudden, he stops to pray that we be one in him. Can I ask you a question? How are we doing with that? I would have to dare say we're, we're not doing too good at times. Not doing too good. But guess what? That was his prayer. His prayer is that we'd be one. So here's the application. We are called into the unity of the church by way of salvation. Then once there, we are called to keep the unity so as to make him known to all. To not sit there and focus on all our differences, but to rally around what he's called us to do. And that's the Great Commission. To go out. Got a team going to Nepal. Or, or there, excuse me. They're there. Don't be making her way back this week. Got Annie who's getting ready to make her way to Guatemala and Honduras. Hopefully we can get behind that. Got the carpenters out there uh, who are in Africa. Got, got, got all these different people out there who, who, who've gone from, uh, from among us. But y'all, it doesn't stop with them doing all the work. We're also called to do that as a local body and as individuals. To not so focus on our differences, but in unity be focused on what is important. The call to reach people. The call to do ministry. And y'all, that's exactly where Paul's going to... He, he used the verses this morning as literally a diving board to show us how this needs to play itself out. So what you saw this morning is nothing more than he's setting the stage for what he's getting ready to share. 
And he's getting ready to say, share the fact that we need to be unified to do the work of Christ, what he's called us to. And we'll see that in the coming weeks. Would you stand to your feet? Father, we just come to you right now, and we thank you for your loving and your goodness. And, Lord, I just uh, thank you for a church family, Lord, uh, that, that desires to be unified, that loves you. And, Father, I just thank you for the privilege to be able to pastor a, a church that, uh, that appears to be unified in what you've called us to. Father, I know there's so many around us that don't have that luxury. Congregations that focus more on the differences and, and how we can be different, how we can be separate. Father, help us to be called under one umbrella. Lord, as one body, in one spirit, with one God and Father, with one Lord, with one baptism, one identification. Lord, it's not different ones. Lord, it's all about what you called us to. One in Christ. Father, we just thank you for that. Lord, if there's someone here today that, that maybe they, in their family or even in their church family, they've made more of what they're supposed to be about, about them instead of what you're doing in the midst of that family or in the midst of this church family. Father, help us to come clean and realize that we are to come in unity to protect it, to be diligent about protecting the unity, to be intentional. And, and then, Father, the, the way we do that is to be humble to be meek, to be patient with one another, to be forbearing, and then wrap it all up in love, to love unconditionally. Father, give us that heart as your people. Lord, move on our hearts. Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, they, they can't say that this morning that they're in Christ. They've never turned from their sin and turned to you. I pray today will be the day they give their life to you. Father, have your way in this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. Get